was probably pretty good the first time. The second reading of Scripture today is from the book of Exodus, a book that uh, was uh, written, but then, uh, as, as almost all the biblical books were uh, evolved over time, edited, had somewhat different uh, editions or touches over centuries uh, and that brought together the final form. So this is a reading from the first chapter of Exodus. Then a new king who did not know Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. We must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war were to break out, they would join our enemies and fight against us and they would leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth, and observe them on the delivery stool. If it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives even arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. This is also the word of the Lord. So Mary told this story to Mrs. Van Cleve, the woman in the little town where Mary grew up, whose house she would go to twice a week during the school year, after school, to share lemonade and cookies with Miss Van Cleve, who used her tiny teacups and saucers and taught Mary pottery. And Miss Van Cleve would inquire about Mary's day at school and how things were going at home. And Mary told her this story. One day, I went outside with my dad, and we went out back to check on the birds, the chickens and the turkeys and the other animals that we had on our little farm. And while we were out there, I told him that I might want to be an English teacher one day. And he stopped what he was doing and he looked carefully at me and he said, I'm afraid with your figure and your big nose, you will never marry 
you'd better try to be a doctor so you can support yourself. Well, Mary said she didn't like that, never thought of herself as not pretty, never thought she might or might not marry. But Miss Van Cleve, Mary wrote, looked stunned at my story. Let me read this. She says, no doubt your father wants you to be secure financially, Mary. He has seen a lot of hunger and poverty, but he was wrong to say that. He was blind to your beauty. And after she said that, I held her hand for a long time before we returned to the pottery. During our lessons, I thought I was learning to paint and throw pots. In fact, I was much too clumsy for, to be a good artist. Instead, during my time with Miss Van Cleve, I was receiving therapy. Years later, I learned from her grandniece that Miss Van Cleve had been concerned about me for a long time and so had offered my mother to give me pottery lessons. Whenever I walked out of her study with its gorgeous late afternoon light, I felt calm and cared for. My jangled mind had settled down and I could walk back to my house with something to offer my family. There were two kinds of light in that art studio the shafts coming through the western windows in late afternoons, and the love beaming from my teacher's heart. I thought about how this story for me connects to the story in Exodus. Because I always, when I hear a story, I wonder about the interior lives of the characters. I wonder in this story, in Exodus, about the inner resources which Shipra and Pua must have had to draw upon, to do what they did. What was the light coming into their lives? The, the book of Exodus is no doubt kerygma. It's proclamation of light and love no less than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's speaking to a specific congregation, to people in a certain time, but also perhaps to every generation of people of faith. It's a story of a head of state, a head of government, who despite his power is insecure. Does that remind you of anyone? It's a story of a nation that was taught to fear the very immigrants in their midst who had helped to build their nation and, and were an essential part of their economy. Does that remind you of anyone? It's a story of survival by a vulnerable people who are facing the threat of death and even extermination. And at the center of it are two women. Nobodies, really. You'd never heard of Shipra and Pua. Neither had I. But they're elevated in this storytelling 
as two nobodies who come into the very court of Pharaoh, who for some reason defy death, because that is certainly what would have happened to them, and they choose life. They reject fear, and they act with compassion. Pharaoh operated with a deeply ingrained assumption, which I assume all his people did have, that Egyptians and Hebrews are fundamentally different. They look different. Perhaps their brain size or brain chemistry could could be different. Certainly their physical strength is different. I'd lay that their morality is different. In fact, in so many ways, Pharaoh assumed that the Egyptians were superior to the Hebrews. How else could you justify enslaving them? But they were crucial to their economy in spite of the xenophobia that grabbed his heart. It was the original replacement theory. They're growing too numerous. What's going to happen if they keep multiplying, keep growing in power and in size? They, They might turn against us. They might try to escape. The irony is, eventually they did. The two women in the story, they're not rich aristocrats. They're not CEOs. They're not political operatives. They're healthcare workers. They're involved in family services. They're a part of the most intimate uh, events of the Hebrew family's lives. And something in them must have compelled them to see the whole situation differently than Pharaoh did. They would not cooperate. They would not allow themselves to be used or co-opted. They dared to subvert hate and inhumanity with acts of love. And make no mistake, it took bold courage to do that. Why? Well, the text gives us a clue. It says that they feared God rather than Pharaoh. They feared God. Now, that really means that fear of God is a way of seeing It's a way of looking at the world. It's a value system. It's another way of talking about faith. Faith, we are told in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, ironically, faith is the conviction of things hoped for. The conviction. So I'm imagining that these two women at some point, they saw or felt a light 
that came into their hearts. Something deep within that led them to conviction. Led them to humanity. To bold action. Love denouncing darkness. Defying empire. Refusing intimidation. Embracing differences. Creating new solutions. Risking their friends and their reputations and their careers and their own security. Seeking the good of their whole community. Even those on the outside. I doubt that these two nobodies ever thought that they would be in a position to make a difference or would ever be in the presence of the great Pharaoh. One can never predict, I don't think, or even imagine where faith might take us. Jesus as he was a young carpenter in Nazareth, I wonder if he ever thought he would go to Samaria or the land of the Gazarenes on the other side of the lake where no one would go or would be in the very palace of Herod. I know that as a young man just beginning uh, work in young life and then later on in the church, I never thought that I would end up on the outskirts of Miami in a pig farm in the Everglades or on the sublime high peaks of the 14,000 foot range in Colorado. I never thought I would be able to go to the wonderful island of Iona and see and feel and experience that holy place or go to the equally wonderful island of Haiti numerous times and see the beauty and experience the hospitality of those amazing people. I never thought I would be spending time in high school cafeterias sticking out like a sore thumb or sitting on ice-frozen high school football bleachers why? I never thought I would be in Jamaica watching the World Cup in a jail. Maybe I should explain that. Uh, <laughs> you see, I led a group of uh, youth to Jamaica for a mission trip, and part of our work was to paint the jail uh, in the capital city, so we're there they, they shoved all the prisoners over to one side of the jail, but it was all kind of open air. And then we're working and painting on the other side. And then in the middle, there is this guard house. And the guards, there's like three or four guards in there, and they're watching this tiny little TV. And the World Cup soccer game is on, and Jamaica is playing. And they're riveted, and they're yelling with every kick and every possession. And the, and the prisoners are like way over there, but they can see the TV and they're saying, what happened, what happened? Of course, I, don't, I think that's what they were saying. I couldn't understand. But, but, and so the, the guards would report to the prisoners the, the kind of play-by-play -play, and the prisoners would be cheering and booing. And it was like they were, they were transformed into one community of people by, by this soccer game. 
just a glimpse of humanity in, the, in a place of such, such uh, I don't know, such difficulty. What was I doing there? How about you? How far afield has your faith taken you? Have you ever ended up someplace or involved with some people that you wonder, what in the world am I doing here? Except that my faith, my conviction, the love of Christ compels me to go there, to be here, to do this. Where does your moral energy rise up? Who needs that light that you have? You know, there are crises at the borders in a hundred countries. And there are crises within the borders and within our families, within our hearts and minds. How will we respond to God's call to be midwives for justice and mercy? Our liturgy is replete with expressions of our conviction that we worship a God of mercy. So, even if we are nobodies, we can let our light shine and be midwives of new life. Amen.